Good day, everyone. It's a beautiful day in the Psyche community. Welcome to Psyche Podcast, where we are dedicated to improving mental health together. You are here with your podcast hosts, Dr. Zamika Simmons-Yan and Alyssa Peckham, where we will spill the tea on hot topics in psychiatry. That's right. Here on Psyche Community Podcast, you will get a quick lowdown on what's steaming in the world of mental health. We ask you to listen to the episodes, rate us, and review us. Better yet, share the Psyche Podcast with your friends, where we all can sip on the Psyche tea and maybe have a side of lemon with it. Well, I hope you're excited because today we have a lot of tea to spill. Before I forget, I just have to let you know I will probably have two cups of chill tea today. Why? Because it is daylight savings time, y'all. And I love these longer days where the sun is shining and it doesn't get dark early. I actually hope many of us are acclimating to this time change, especially concerning our wellness. If not, and it's more challenging for you, maybe you can try this old saying or proverb. And here it is. Every day, take your meds. Take your meds. The M stands for meditation, the E, exercise, the D is diet and nutrition, and the S is for sleep. These are lifestyle habits that are good for the body and for the mental wellness. Well, since we have mentioned meds, this episode is actually dedicated to a very important topic around medication adherence in bipolar disorder. And we have a very special guest who would discuss the challenges of adherence and even point us to some resources to better serve our patients living with bipolar. Our phenomenal guest is none other than the world-renowned Dr. Joseph Goldberg. Yes, we have Dr. Goldberg here, and he will quench our thirst with the tea given his expertise. Now, I tell you, We have the best person spilling the tea on this topic because Dr. Goldberg is a clinical professor of psychiatry at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, and he's also the newly president-elect of the American Society of Psychopharmacology. Ooh, that's good. Dr. Goldberg serves as a bipolar section advisor for PsyQ and has published several books and hundreds of peer-reviewed papers on topics related to clinical features of bipolar and psychopharmacology. So you know I will be getting an autograph today. I told you, we have the expert. So check this out. He is a distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association and has been listed for many years in Best Doctors in America and Castle Connolly's America's Top Doctors. Boom, there it is. Welcome, Dr. Goldberg, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Amika, for that very kind introduction. Well, of course, I I couldn't give your introduction justice. I couldn't. So why don't you just please tell us a little more about yourself and your specific interests? Sure. Well, so for many years, um, my interest has been in in bipolar disorder. Way, way back in the day when I was in college, I, I was thinking about what I wanted to do with my life. And I was a I was a psychology major and I was working with a research group 
that was studying schizophrenia back, back in those days. That was the big thing. And bipolar disorder patients were a comparison group uh, in this research program. And way back then, there weren't very many treatments and nobody really studied it. And, and I couldn't really elbow along with the schizophrenia researchers. So I decided, well, this is interesting. I'll study this. And, and then over the years, it, it grew as an interest because there's so many aspects of bipolar disorder that involve mood and thinking and behavior and motivation and, and cognition and genetics, and then an explosion of psychopharmacology that really began in the 1990s and has continued on. So that, that kind of paved the way for a career for me. I went to uh, I went to grad school, then med school, and, and did my psychiatry residency, and, um, and then have been involved in clinical trials in bipolar disorder, and, and all those interesting little sort of side avenues that one can take looking at things like cognition or um, uh, genetics or uh, comorbidities. Um, there, there's plenty to keep one interested in here. There's so many aspects of what we treat in bipolar disorder. So my, my professional and clinical work has largely been around um, uh, wanting to better understand the, the course and the outcome and the best treatments for, for this condition. And very clearly a disease state expert that is so passionate about this population. So we are so happy to have you on today. But today we're talking about medication adherence with a special attention paid to those with uh, bipolar one disorder, of course. And so jumping right in, you know, the first question that I have to ask is, is, do we see a difference in medication adherence for those who have a primary diagnosis of bipolar one disorder versus, you know, some other mental health conditions like depression or schizophrenia or whatnot? And if you think that's true, why why do you think that is? Um, so, uh, yes, I think for lots of reasons, in part, as I was describing before, my own sort of professional interest in this element is it involves so many different kinds of problems. Most people with bipolar illness have more than one ailment going on. Uh, three quarters have a second psychiatric diagnosis, half have a third. So th there's a lot going on for, for people that are encountering bipolar disorder. We, we often talk about the underdiagnosis. I often like to say the underdiagnoses, because uh, most people do have additional issues going on. And that sometimes involves um, either multiple medicines or very broadly acting medicines. And so I think for those reasons, some of the challenges for adherence have to do with you're, you're treating more than one problem. You're not just treating, uh, depression is no picnic to treat, but unipolar depression with, with no comorbidities, um, or let's say panic disorder without comorbidities, or even a substance use disorder without comorbidities, limits the extent to which you're, you're, you're sort of trying to tackle many, many targets. So part of why poor adherence rates can be so high in people with bipolar disorder, some studies would say 60% or more at some point in time will either stop their medicines or not take them appropriately, may have to do with, well, you know, which of the five medicines I'm taking will I stop? Or um, am I taking medicines for certain symptoms but not others? Or uh, do I have objections about how effective the medicines are? And here I might point to one of the key factors that seems to figure in with poor adherence and bipolar disorder, say compared to schizophrenia, is, is depression. Uh, in particular, duration of depression has been shown to be one of the predictors of poor adherence. And in my clinical work and, and professional research work, um, finding effective treatments for the depressed phase of bipolar disorder has been very, very challenging. So a lot of patients will find themselves taking uh, multiple medicines 
often targeted at depression that, that don't necessarily work that well. That means monoaminergic antidepressants, which as a class haven't been shown to be that helpful, or uh, uh, taking mood stabilizers that are more effective for mania than for depression. Um, so the first point I would make about what's different and, and why non-adherence is so high, it actually comes from just listening to patients themselves. There was a very interesting patient survey in the Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance not long ago in which patients reported that about 70% said, if this medicine is not working, I don't want to take it. What a surprise. And similarly, about 70% or so also said, oh, and by the way, if the medicine has a lot of side effects, I'm not going to take it either. So we have to listen to what patients themselves are telling us. It's like saying this restaurant has lousy food and there's not enough of it. Why, why go back there? So um, we, we need effective treatments. And um, we also want to try to streamline our treatments. That means trying to minimize the number of medicines and make sure we're targeting the core symptoms that patients themselves are aware of and are trying to minimize adverse effects. Those three things, uh, effective for the core symptoms patients themselves recognize, minimizing adverse effects and trying to streamline treatments. I think we go very far in trying to address the problems of adherence, but there's a multitude of other factors that come along for the ride. When we study poor adherence, um, uh, comorbidities rank high on the list, uh, but both in schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, substance use comorbidity is one of the highest causes or correlates of poor adherence. Um, poor social functioning, uh, younger age, um, uh, uh, poor social supports, uh, lower education levels, lack of insight into the illness, uh, in particular in bipolar disorder, has been identified as one of the correlates of poor adherence. Patients who say, I don't need this, there's nothing wrong with me, even more so than in schizophrenia. Um, and again, side effects tend to be a, a very prominent contributor. Um, so collectively, these are all things that I think make adherence so important a topic and unique in bipolar disorder. You know, I, I really like the fact that you touched on this a little bit, but I'm just going to have to ask this because a lot of times um, we in the mental health profession, we we discuss those challenges. We we are very aware of them, but we never converse about the solutions to the issues, which helps no one, especially the patient. And like I said, you talked a little bit about this, but we do have to listen to the patient. So just in your experience, what are some of those adherence improvement recommendations that you've made to others or yourself that have been well received and successful for that average patient living with bipolar? So my own take on this is I think you have to meet the patient where they are. And given that we know most people with this illness will have poor adherence, I don't think it makes sense to tiptoe around it. And, and so in my own experience, I will forecast to patients, particularly when they're feeling better, something like the following. So I'm glad to see you're feeling better now. Um, you might be wondering, when can you stop these medicines? Because a lot of people will ask me, so now that I'm better, can I stop everything? And then I, I kind of look to see what the response is. If I see their head nodding up and down, I know that that's a different trajectory than someone who's looking at me puzzled saying, wait a minute, what do you mean stop? You know, imagine if an orthopedist put a cast on you for a broken leg. And the first thing you said was, you know, when can I take it off? Uh, you can take it off when you're, when it's, when it's healed and it's harder to know what the time frame is. So I, I partially want to gauge where the patient is at 
in thinking about, is this a short-term or a more longer-term proposition? Someone in their first, their second episode who hasn't had a lot of experience with the illness comes at this differently than someone who's been on medicines or been in the hospital more than once or incurred some of the, the psychosocial problems that come up with this illness. So I kind of want to gauge th their own sense of um, partnership about, about the treatment trajectory itself. If the sense I'm getting is, um, look, you know, who wants to take medicines? Nobody does. Uh, but at the same time, I don't want to relapse. So I, I really want to gauge what's a priority to the patient. And I'll ask them explicitly, now that you're feeling better, because that's really the best time to initiate these conversations about adherence, um, is, you know, what are your goals? If their goal is, I want to get off medicines, that's different from I want to stay healthy. And I'll even point it out. If they're not sure what their goals are, I'll say, you know, some people have told me their main priorities, they don't ever want to have another episode. They don't want to go to the hospital again. They don't want to risk losing their job or their relationships fall into jeopardy. Um, and and I, will, I will make sure their words come back to them in the future if there does come a point where they're saying, so can I stop this medicine now? And I've done this. I'll look back at my notes and say, you know, a year and a half ago, you told me the most important thing to you was to make sure that you didn't have a relapse. And then I'll remind you of what you said to me when you had that episode before. So if you decide you want to stop a medicine, it's a risky proposition, isn't it? I mean, in my office in the pre-pandemic days, I had, a, I had the game Jenga on my desk. You folks know Jenga. You have of to, course. You have and everything comes falling down. <laughs> yeah. I, I hate that game, but it, it does illustrate a point. And I will tell patients that pharmacology sometimes can be a bit like Jenga. And if someone asks, what happens if I pull this piece out? Will the tower fall down or not? You know, if someone says, um, uh, you know, I'd like to stop a medicine, I'll ask, well, don't we want to know what the medicine is, is doing? Because uh, if we just randomly take something away, for all we know, it'd be like knocking out a support wall in a building and watching it come down. So um, I, I liken medicines for patients also to, to personnel rosters. And I'll say every medicine in the, in the organization has a job or a role to do. And I'll even ask the patient, what do you think drug X is doing? What do you think drug Y is doing? If we're not sure, no job security for that medicine. So I want the patient's I don't want to say buy-in, but I want their perspective that the medicines are serving a purpose. Because if they are going to become non-adherent or question whether they need to continue taking it, I want to be sure that they understand what's involved so it's not arbitrary. And I also want them to feel empowered. I will say to patients, most people with this condition at some point want to stop their medicines. Then I'll look at them and ask kind of what they say. If they say, oh, I'd never do that. I say, well, a lot of people do, um, you know, for a variety of reasons. And then if they're interested, I can espouse some of those, as I've said already, things like, you know, I'm feeling better, not sure I need it, or side effects, or hassle, or the number of medicines, or I'm not sure it's working that well. So again, in the spirit of enlisting the patient as a partner, I'll, I'll tell them, you know, two of the top reasons people often stop their medicines is they're skeptical that they're helping or they don't like side effects. Could I ask you a favor? If there ever comes a time where that's how you feel, could you let me know? Because if you don't think the medicine's working, I don't want to just keep prescribing it for you. And if there's a side effect that you're having that's making you consider wanting to stop the medicine, I want to know that too, because I could I could maybe help either by changing the medicine or the dose or or, or something. So I really try to fall back on the, the relationship of the therapeutic alliance and let the patient know that I'm I'm not there to judge. I'm not there to say, so are you taking your meds? Uh, it's kind of like my dentist asking me, so you're flossing your teeth? 
and, and I have yet to look him in the eye and say, no, I'm not. What are you going to do about it? It's not a confrontation. I mean, you know, I wish my dentist would say, you know, I don't know if you floss your teeth or not, but, you know, I noticed there's some gum disease. And if your priority, Joe, is to have healthy gums, you know, let me remind you that flossing, you know, helps with that. And if there's obstacles, maybe I can help. Uh, there are some patients for whom, you know, the sheer number of medicines that they might take becomes an obstacle. Um, there are some patients for whom it's easier to take an injection, say on a once a month basis, as opposed to taking pills. Um, so there's lots of ways that I think we can present options to someone and almost fall back on sort of a, like a motivational interviewing stance of helping them identify for themselves what's important to them. And we're here to try to make that easier for them. Wow. You, you gave us a lot. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, you say this right when I have a dentist appointment today. So I'm going <laughs> to see, I'm going to see how they approach me when they ask me about the flossing. <laughs> I have yet to solve that problem myself. But you know, it's interesting. intellectually, take that example. I, I, I don't need to be educated about flossing, but there's something about it. I just don't like it. And I once quick aside, I once had a, a dentist actually say to me, you know, I don't like flossing either. So I use a water pick. And it was like a light went off. I said, I can do that. I said, it's better than nothing. And it, it engaged me. I mean, it, it made me think there's a strategy. If there's something you don't like, it's not, you know, too bad, so sad, nothing you can do about it. It's, it's you know, let's see if we can problem solve this together. And I, I just love that approach. Sadly, the dentist left. Point. I bet a lot of our listeners are really itching to learn more about this, particularly given that high percentage of patients that may be experiencing this. So, you know, where do you recommend that they turn to if they're if they're seeking more information about this topic? Oh, those lucky listeners are in for a treat because of the upcoming March webinar, which by the time we present this may actually have been posted on the PsychQ website on the impact of adherence among individuals with bipolar disorder that uh, my colleague Martha Sachatovic and I are going to be presenting and, and talking in more detail about some of the research that goes into non-adherence. And again, these sort of practical, you know, one thing we like to do in PsychQ is just be very practical and pragmatic and, and sort of bring research findings into the, the realm of, well, how can you put this into clinical practice for your own patients. So she and I will be, be talking about that. And I, I think it's going to be a very helpful resource for our, our psyche community who want to know more about what can you do to engage people with bipolar disorder to try to maximize adherence. I tell you, you have captured a lot, Dr. Goldberg, and I can't forget. Now I'm going to put my little jingle, uh, Jenga tower up, and I am going to be very hesitant on pulling out those blocks. So thank you, and thank you for pointing our listeners um, to find out more information on this topic. Hope this has been helpful. Um, looking forward to the looking forward to it myself. All right, so there you have it. You've heard it for yourself right here on PsychU Community Podcast. But the beauty is, is that you don't have to stop here. So definitely head over and check out the show notes for the links to find more resources about today's discussion on psychu.org. And as always, if you've enjoyed this episode and you'd like to hear more hot topics right here on the PsychU Community Podcast, please rate and review us and then subscribe so you can always get the new episode right when it drops. And for the social media lovers out there, check out our other social media platforms like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. So until next time, thank you for listening, everyone, and we hope you have a great day.